Hello and welcome to the first Farm One podcast. Uh, This is a brand new thing that we're going to do. I'm Rob Lang. I'm the CEO and founder of Farm One. With me, I have... Ina Tubalaiha, Chief of Staff. And... Michael Chin, Vice President, Corporate Development. Great. Um, And yeah, we're going to kick it off. So today, uh, we're going to tell you a little bit about, you know, why are we doing this podcast? Um, we're going to go straight into some industry news and things that we think are kind of interesting and going on and also tell you what's been going on at Farm One over the past few months. Um, it's been a little bit of an interesting year, uh, probably has been for you too. Uh, and we want to give you some background on this. And the idea is that, you know, on a regular basis, we're going to giving you, be giving you this kind of uh, update from us, industry comment, uh, maybe some interviews. Some of them might be remote. Some of them might be possibly, possibly in person. Um, as background, uh, we're trying to do this COVID safe. So, Ina, have you talked to or met anybody in the past, whatever? Month? Absolutely not. No. Okay. And me neither. So, uh, we're basically safe in a little Farm One bubble. Uh, Michael is over in Maryland. Um, so, there's pretty much no danger of any infection across the internet. Um, so we're trying to be as safe as possible. Um, but that's really, you know, uh, what we're going to be doing. And, um, you know, this one might be a little bit kind of ad hoc and, you know, we're still figuring out. We've got like a brand new camera here. We've got some lights. We've got a Zoom thing. We hope everything's recording. Um, so, yeah, let's just kind of uh, kick it off. So let's talk first maybe about our backgrounds. Um, why don't you go first, Ina, and then Michael, and then I can do it because I talk about my background in Farm One all the time. Um, so let's dive into something a little bit different. Yeah, um, I was, I, I came from the healthcare background. When I first became interested in food and agriculture, um, I was actually running a pop-up clinic program for healthcare um, services in Newark, New Jersey. And in that industry, what I was doing was I was setting up healthcare clinics in places like high school gyms, churches, and they would be accompanied by food pantries. And we were really targeting um, vulnerable populations for the healthcare clinics so that we could give them access to healthcare services. And it was at those pop-up clinics that I was learning about a lot of the problems in food access and food security. So what would happen is people that would come to the pop-up clinic, they would pick up their, their food from the food pantry and then visit a doctor. And the doctor would say, you really need to start focusing on eating fresh foods, foods, fruits and vegetables because your blood pressure is really high. And this really confused me because the doctor was giving advice to a patient that said, you need fresh foods, fruits and vegetables. But the ingredients that they were getting at the food pantry were non-perishables. You know, the classic thing that we see is canned goods. And so I thought, you know, if I want a healthier population, why don't I go to the other side of the equation? So when I first approached Farm One, it was actually as a tour guide. And Rob was the one that did my interview. Um, That was last August, actually. And I really wanted to understand a little bit more about the food and farming and and vertical farming industry before I really dove in. And so I was like, the tour guide position is a really great opportunity for me to learn and get people excited about what they're eating. And being a tour guide was probably the best job I've ever had. Um, Every day we would have tours here on the farm prior to COVID and 
tour guests would come and they would, you know, come up and down the aisles uh, and try new herbs. And it was just so much fun to watch their faces light up and be excited by things that they thought they tried before, but never really tasted. And to see that the look in their eyes when they tried a new herb was so rewarding. And my favorite part at the end of every tour was someone saying, I'm never gonna look at my plate the same ever again. That's pretty cool. Wow, seems like a long time ago, <laughs> right? Oh my gosh, and I, I yeah. think about like my interview I, I didn't know what the vertical farming industry was like. And I was thinking a lot about like, how do I present myself at the interview? You know, I came from the healthcare industry, which was typically very conservative, right? You can't take a lot of risks because people's lives are at stake. Yeah. And so I was like, how do I present myself at this interview? It's a farm, but it's in the city. And I want them to know that I'm an actual professional, but mm -hmm. it's a farm. So how do I dress? And I'm so embarrassed to admit this, but I wore heels to my interview because I wanted to be a professional and I can't believe I ever did that. We don't wear heels at the farm. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> anyway, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not that long ago. So August last year, you said, and then I guess you were doing tours up until February, end of yeah. February, and then complete change. So, yeah, complete yeah. change. And then I transitioned okay. to the position of project manager, uh -huh. helping the team out with a lot of the custom builds. The first project that I worked on was the unit that we built in Whole Foods. Yeah. Such a fun project. And then now chief of staff. Big changes, big changes. Thanks, Ina. Uh, let's go over to Michael now. How did you even end up involved in this crazy business? Uh, that's a good question. So um, uh, my background's been largely in the tech industry. I started my career in the late 90s in the Bay Area and kind of rode the dot-com wave. And then after that, mobile and, and uh, eventually sort of started building some uh, social media companies. Um, so, you know, I always found myself uh, in the industry kind of, you know, a few years ahead of when, uh, you know, some new part of the tech industry really exploded. Um, and I was wrapping up some of the work that I was doing at my last company, which was in New York. Um, we built a social media content distribution platform out of an operation called Betaworks. Um, and a few years ago, a fellow named Rob Lang stumbled in to Betaworks um, and I got to know him and uh, we, we were, uh, we had a large client out in Japan and needed a whole bunch of stuff on our uh, app and on our website translated. Um, and so I gave Rob a call and uh, we ended up using uh, Gengo, his, his company's service at the time. And so that was a while ago. And as I was wrapping up, um, I work back around 2016, 2017. Um, I noticed that Rob had moved to New York and uh, was working on Farm One and, and it was a, a vertical farming company. And I knew very little about that. Uh, and in many respects, still do know very little. Um, but reached out to Rob and Rob invited me uh, to the farm for a tour. And it was like nothing else uh, that I had ever experienced. And uh, it was really fun. Uh, we sat down and had a chat after that, and um, a couple of years go by, and earlier this year, uh, right about when COVID was sort of, you know, 
uh, with all of the uncertainty of March and April and when uh, when that was really blown up, I was sort of sitting around and I decided to reach back out to you and say, what are you guys up to? What's happening there? How's that hitting you guys? And, you know, part of what I was looking to do was really to find the next thing to sink my teeth into uh, and help build. Um, for whatever reason, always been drawn to uh, really early stage companies where there's a lot of chaos, a lot of unknown, uh, but a lot of fun uh, and, and, uh, so yeah, here we go. And uh, started in June, uh, working with uh, both of you to uh, see what we can do with the business to grow it and to and to expand it. Cool. Yeah, you joined at a pretty crazy time. Uh, but, you know, I think we're already um, you know working on some new deals together and uh, looking to expand in some interesting ways. So you know, we'll hopefully have some updates that we can share on that pretty soon. Um, so, you know, obviously the biggest like thing that's happened this year to us and everyone in the hospitality industry is COVID. And, you know, I was sitting here back at the beginning of March, just as the city was like closing down and we were talking about, um, a lot of our customers closing and really, you know, we were pretty uncertain about what we were going to do. And, um, you know, we went through, I guess, a lot of experimentation, really. Um, you know, one of the things that we tried to do as a business first was because, you know, restaurant sales had shut down, uh, the tours and the classes that we were doing were not possible anymore. So we were trying to figure out like, okay, what do we do? And, you know, we tried initially um, to offer a similar sort of range of products that we were selling to chefs as a direct to consumer offering and tried to sort of build up a, a kind of e-commerce website and do that. Um, I got to say, like, it was, you know, we did some cool stuff, but it was like really hard to kind of get it going. Right. And um, it was really hard to have something that was more than like just ad hoc orders every so often from random people. And partly because of the huge range of products that we grow, you know, it's a little bit overwhelming for a home cook. And so, you know, throughout March, April, May, June, oh my God, many months <laughs> we were trying to make that work and you know it was a little bit heartbreaking for the team i think because we were working so hard on like churning through and harvesting all that kind of stuff um but not getting like sufficient traction and actually finding that we needed like more labor to satisfy like less revenue um i don't know if you want to chime in because you were sort of you were both there at that time but like it was yeah it was pretty tough i think between march and you know let's say maybe august or something yeah, and I, I think that even with the direct-to-consumer offerings, we were also thinking about online experiences too. Right. And how do we entertain people when they're sitting at home? And yeah. it's really difficult when, you know, we're so used to being this in-person experience. So it's very tactile. It's very um, sensory having tours. And, and it's really difficult to replicate that through an online format. And I think that that's one of the challenges that we also experienced because of COVID as well. Yeah, and like, you know, the, I think the tricky thing about this business in particular is that everybody loves the farm, like visitors love the farm, the people who get the product, they love it, but that love isn't always financially sort of sustainable, you know, um, and so we have to find ways to like, you know, make sure we're a sustainable business. And I think that, um, you know, the... 
Farms, I think, in cities are really valuable things, like because they do connect people to food and they do provide something that's of huge value. But at the same time, you know, they're not free to run. And we, you know, as a business, we kind of reached this sort of crisis point in August where we we realized, like, look, um, if we continue to try to do what we've been doing, like, we're just not going to be around for much longer. We won't be able to pay the bills. So um you know august was a really painful month and we had to let some people go and we had to just completely change what we were doing um and we're sort of you know in case it isn't obvious we're like a, we're a startup we're still trying to figure out what we're doing but you know up until like february we thought we had it all figured out we were doing chef sales it was very successful we were doing tours and classes it was successful we had expansion plans we were building new systems etc and then COVID came along and completely you know, change that. So we've kind of been thrown back into this original startup state of like figuring out what you're going to do and figuring out if anyone wants to buy what you're selling and figuring out like, can you be profitable by doing that? It's like really fundamental kind of stuff. And I know like, Michael, you've kind of been through that phase in other companies. And I think maybe you thought by joining Farm One, you were through that and you didn't have to do it anymore. But like, um, we've obviously been through that. And I don't know if you want to share like any particular painful like moments you've been through that have been like that in terms of that rebirth and like figuring out like how to make money, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of, you know, kind of part and parcel of uh, startup life, right? Especially at tech companies. You know, you start initially with some form of an idea. Ideally, you start with, you know, some sense of the market that you have and the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, you know, when I came into Farm One, it was so interesting because it was, as I was learning more and more about the business, it was so, so clear that, um, you know, you and the team had solved the problem um, for uh, chefs in particular in New York City um, and the sourcing of ingredients and, and all of that. And, um, you know, at some stage, it'd be really fun to sort of really drill into that because I think, you know, in, in, as part of what I do, I, I talk to a lot of either, you know, their existing farmers, typically a, an, an outdoor urban farmer or somebody who wants to get into farming and into the industry. Um, there's so many lessons to have learned, I think, that we could share uh, with them. But, you know, it was so, it was so interesting to see and, and um, it, it you know, in the tech industry, they talk about it a lot as, you know, product market fit and trying to, you know, the early stages of the company, you're kind of scrambling for that. You're trying to find some sort of a foothold. And, you know, I think more often than not, it's not some magical thing that one day, you know, uh, you wake up with this great idea, you decide to put a little bit into it and you build a product and then, uh, you know, it's all done, right? It's, it's more like a ladder that you're climbing that occasionally you slip off of a few rungs and those rungs disappear and you pop back down, but then you find another little, you know, foothold and you're climbing and all of that. Yeah. But what was, what was so interesting, you know, especially in the early days was, you know, coming in, seeing that, that, you know, we had this really clear market, really clear approach, really clear everything. And then, of course, COVID, you know, through the entire world for this loop. Um, but what was so interesting to me was taking all of that and the brand that you and the team had built up until that point, trying to find a new market for it. But then also realizing, you know, maybe the market does or doesn't exist. We weren't really sure. Um, but we had this sort of legacy um, 
production uh, uh, approach, you know, this grow to order approach, this really high end sort of premium, uh, rare and specialty ingredients. And almost trying to find a way with that into a new market it was so interesting to see the team yeah. kind of work through that, um, which I think is a real lesson, right? It's a real lesson of, you know, taking something that you've really sort of, you know, perfected, um, having to adapt um, and um, coming out the other end of it and, and saying, okay, you know, can we be as dispassionate about this? look at this as objectively as possible um, and, you know, not, not being too tied to it with your ego in one way or another. Um, but, you know, really trying to see where the problems are and what you can really solve. So yeah. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. curious as, as you know, in your, in your role, Rob, as the founder, kind of what you went through watching all of this, because I think for Ina and I, yeah, you know, we're in it in varying degrees and, you know, but there's a, a certain level of detachment, right, that we have. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, like a friend of mine named Felix, he uh, started a company called Last FM, which, you know, uh, grew to be very popular and, and he had a, a great success. And then a few years after exiting that company, he started another company with a co-founder of Last FM, and he, I remember having lunch with him like a year into that, and he was like, oh yeah, I just forgot how fucking hard it is to start a company, and I don't know why I'm doing it again. You know, and I, I think like every time you go through these like ups and downs, like in a startup, you go like, oh my God, why am I doing this? You know, because it's so stressful, and you have this mixture of like external people who you talk to, who you, you know, you want to give them good news about the company. They want to hear good news about the company. They want to hear that everything's going great. But also sometimes you want to tell them like, look, it's a struggle, you know? And then of course, if you do that, then a lot of people who are maybe unqualified want to give you advice, you know, and then you have to deal with that. And literally, and I, I mean, you know, we worked through some of these budgets in August and like literally, you know, one week we were like, okay, I think we can do this. And then like four weeks later, by the time we'd gone through that process, we were like, okay, it's not possible. We can't do it. And, and so you have this just extreme roller coaster. And I think um, at the same time, you, you know, you're trying to find things that like, okay, customers love this about it, but they don't want to pay for it. Customers like that, maybe they'll pay for it. Um, you know, it's just, you know, sort of grabbing at things. But fortunately, I got to say like, look, we got um, an awesome team. I think we've got something where we have a product that people really, really love and it tastes like amazingly good. And if we didn't have that, we'd be nowhere. And additionally, I think that, you know, we um, have investors who are very, very supportive of what we're doing, who don't really want to just, you know, extract as much money from the business and then run away. Like they're here to support us for the long term. That's like really, really valuable. Um, and I think we've got other things going for us, like, you know, sustainability and caring about the community and, and the whole process of, um, you know, the protests during May, June, July, and sort of the country's like racial, like reawakening or awakening or whatever it is like that, you know, was again, like a, a difficult process for the company, but I think really, really good. And, and so 
I don't know. We we sort of struggled through it, but yeah, it's been uh, it's been tough, and it still will be tough. I think um, you know, moving on, I guess, from the past, like we've got a new offering um, which we're very very confident in, and people seem to be really 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 enjoying. Maybe you should talk about this because this is like your little baby. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the way that customers now engage with Farm One is they can purchase a farm share. It works a lot like CSAs in other farms, community supported agriculture. Um, but the simplest way that I think about it is a weekly subscription box for the freshest greens you will ever have in your entire life. Um, so right now, the way that we've structured it, because we're, we're this is brand new, we've um, structured it so that each customer gets eight weeks of greens, um, three boxes each in each delivery, one box of baby greens, one microgreens, and then another box of herbs and edible flowers. We should have brought the boxes out. I know, I know, I know. Well, there's lots of flowers here. You can, this, this is what is in your box. <laughs> um, I, I took home a box last Friday um, just to see what I could do with it. And I'm still working on it. And the amount of greens, is it, greens in it is amazing. I made edible, um, these cookies with edible flowers in them. Um, I'm, this is, that was my favorite. That was my favorite thing that I've made you so far. I should have, I, I should have. <laughs> Maybe episode two. Okay. <laughs> I'll have those for episode two. Um, but it's just really incredible to like, the, the connection that I feel with the ingredients is something that is, I, I have to speak on this because there's so much pride that I have in looking at these greens and I, I want to honor that. I want to honor, you know, the process of growing um, those ingredients because I know the effort that it took to get the quality of greens that I'm getting. It makes it so much more enjoyable and yeah. the dish that results in it is I, 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 blew, my, I blew myself away. <laughs> I didn't know that I had that capability. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, I think it's a, Genuinely, I think it's a really good offering. So it's you get these three boxes. They're big. They're, if you if you're in the, the restaurant industry, they're quarter size hotel pans. Uh, they're reusable plastic. They're really sturdy, um, and they're red, yellow, and blue. So you can see you know what's in uh, them. So the red has baby, the yellow has microgreens, and then the um, blue has herbs and flowers. And so it's a selection of literally stuff from here. Um, and yeah, we harvest them in the morning. We send them out on the bike by like 10.30 a.m. So they're literally just a couple of hours or even you could count it in minutes, I think really, um, from harvest. And so you get them, they're perfectly fresh and there's no plastic waste because you return the containers. Uh, there's no emissions from transport because it's on a bike. Amir gets on the bike. He has the app. He knows where he's going. It's genuinely pretty cool. And um, we've got uh, a bunch of subscribers now. We've got a few more places that we can fit in. I'm making the three site because I think there's three, <laughs> maybe four or five more places for November. And then we're going to add some additional capacity. And then we're going to be able to do um, a bunch more for December and January. And I really, um, I don't know, I really think it's like, genuinely really cool and there's nothing else like this like you cannot get your greens this way in reusable containers like locally fresh yeah when i went to the grocery store you know the um 
the just the salad greens aisle, everything is in plastic. It sucks. Yeah, and I'm like, where where other where else? Okay, let's break this down a little bit, right? So for outsiders, <laughs> there are a couple of things here that that yeah. I think I think you guys should talk about. First of all. This switch to the trans, uh, this switch to the subscription boxes and to um, uh, to this style of product and this style of produce, that wasn't yeah. an insignificant lift on the part of farm operations. And Justin, who who, who heads up the farm and is our farm operations director, I mean, it was it was sort of you know within within the course of a month, it was a transition from grow to order, which was our, our production model, to this, which is very different. Can you just talk a little bit about that? I mean, what does that mean for, for a farm? I mean, really, you know, in some yeah. respects. Well, I mean, the, you know, if you have to go back even further, really, to go, you know, what we were doing for chefs was grow to order. So if you look at, like, something behind me like this, it would be allocated to a chef, a restaurant, and a recurring delivery. And we did it that way because... Like I had literally had a couple of experiences before I started Farm One where I was scared about like producing too much and not being able to sell it. So I wanted to grow to order. And we built this whole software system for that because I didn't want to grow like thousands of pounds of basil and then have to throw it out or make the world's biggest pesto because I didn't have customers. And so it all came from that. And then we, when we switched to a direct consumer offering in March, April, um, we had to kind of do it that way because we didn't really know any other way of growing, you know? And so when we decided to make a complete switch, we partly did that, you know, because we felt like it would be a better offering for the customer, more consistent, less having to choose, all that kind of thing. And we also thought we could do it. But as you're saying, Michael, like we had to completely change how we plant. We had to uh, completely change how we harvest. Uh, so we now use this like harvesting machine. Um, but the good thing is actually compared to growing like 600 varieties for chefs, it's less labor and it's more efficient and we can actually get like a little bit better yield out per tray or whatever from the farm. Um, but yeah, like the team's been amazing in making those changes. You know, Justin uh, has like completely sort of revamped the farm and we're re we're changing equipment. Jess, our director of technology is like changing equipment now and like, um, yeah, complete change. But like, you gotta, you know, you gotta do that, right? Like, we didn't have years to figure out a new thing. We had, I don't know, six weeks or something to do it, um, and that's what we did. So, so yeah, big change. We even did the, yeah, we even did the research and development of new crops. So we started the the new baby greens and. I mean, I don't, I don't even know what would happen, what would have happened if those didn't taste good. I don't know. We would have done something else. But we did like a whole taste test a few weeks back mm -hmm. and we were like, oh yeah, this is better, crunchiness, flavor, et cetera. Um, and I think we're still, I mean, we're still doing a bunch of R&D as well. So we're trying different lighting and stuff. We're trying um, all different seeds every week, all that kind of thing. And also like we're trying to, um, have a lot of feedback from the customers as well. So trying to discover like what varieties do they like best um, and also think, you know, feedback on the packaging and stuff like that. So we're just trying to get as quick feedback as we can. And what's cool is, you know, I mean, going back to the question you were asking me before, Michael, it's like as startups grow, you know, as teams grow, you're capable of bigger things, but also your capability to move really quickly and change things goes away as well. And so like, it's actually, you know, the good thing about 
um, having uh, a smaller team right now is that we can experiment like really fast and we can change the website like that and we can you know do all that so yeah, and the so, yeah we're thing, excited about it the other thing that's been really fun to watch is um you know it's 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 an exercise in creativity too right because if if you were to send out the same thing every week for eight weeks right people might be like ah you know but but really in some respects watching us play to the, our strengths of you know growing all of these different varieties and then you know every week as as the team talks through it and as Justin sort of thinks about what to plant sort of the yeah. the ideas of mixing different flavors and uh different varieties and you know being able to just throw something in that you know has a shorter growing time that just adds something different to it has been really fun to watch as well yeah it's a good time and it yeah it feels good fingers crossed it works so, okay, one more thing, one more? right? Okay. So the reusable packaging. Okay, so yeah. you know, conventional wisdom would have it is that that's insanity, right? Because it's like, oh, what's this kind of crazy overhead? You know, it's got to be way cheaper as a business to just buy, you know, either disposable or or somehow compostable packaging. I mean, everyone does that, right? You know, you, you, what's the thought process behind that? Well, I mean, a bunch of things. So from the very beginning, you know, I wanted to start like a smaller farming company that was about being able to like reinvent every part of it. So grow to order was one of it. Having a direct connection to chefs was another. If you look at what chefs in New York City, if they're ordering produce from California or Ohio or whatever, if you look at the packaging that they're getting, it's insane. Like you'll have a box that's like that big, the size of a microwave. And then the actual produce that you're getting is the size of like a chia batter or something, you know? And there's everything in between is packaging, which gets thrown away, it's styrofoam, it's insane. And so I wanted to change that. I knew that I could change that. And actually, funnily enough, like an early conversation with Ronnie, I'm pointing that way because that's where the uh, kitchen of Atera, the restaurant is. Uh, an early conversation with him, he's from Denmark and Denmark is, a lot better than the US about sustainability, circular economy, all that kind of stuff. But when he was a chef there, he would actually use reusable packaging for some of his suppliers. And he like forced them to do it. He was like, if you want to supply me as a big restaurant, like you got to do it. And they did it. And I was inspired by that. And so we started to do it with chefs and chefs use uh, what are called hotel pans. They're, it's like the standard sizing system. And so we used those, which meant the chefs could just pop this like in their station when they got it from us. And so that thinking was there, but like we didn't, we weren't really sure we could do it for consumers. But like at the same time, while all this was going on, I've been working with Google on some sustainability projects. A lot of them have been focused on plastics, and we like it's forced me to learn a lot more about the terrible just state of plastic and the environment right now. I mean, it's insane, and so. What I came across a lot of the time working with bigger companies associated with, you know, CPGs and, uh, you know, big, big international corporations is a lot of them, they really want to do reusables. Like there's genuinely really smart, capable, good people in their sustainability organizations, but they just can't do it. Like as, you know, uh, I'll pick a brand at random, like Pepsi, right? Like, how do you do it if you're delivering to all these different grocery stores and what, you can't do reusables very easily? 
And so I think for us, it was something where we were like, okay, actually we can do this. And actually, if you look at um, the trends out there, there's a company called Deliver Zero, which does it for takeout. Um, there's a company called The Wally Shop, which does like a packaging limited, like, like mason jars and like uh, glass packaging and stuff like that. So lots of people want to do it. And I think there's a lot of people in cities who are just desperate to find some way to reduce their plastic footprint. And thankfully, uh, we can do it. And I'm, I'm really, really excited about that. So I, I think this is how small companies that work in local areas should be delivering their stuff. That is the end of my lecture speech is done. Yeah. And it saves a lot of money. Yeah, it does actually. <laughs> um, yeah. Just for one customer, if we were yeah. delivering them to a whole, for a whole year, we save 90% in packaging. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. The, and we, and we were buying like eco-friendly, biodegradable, disposable packaging before. And like, it's, it was like the best that we could do, but uh, yeah, it's expensive and wasteful. Used to be uh, in the olden days, the milkman used to do it that way. So, hey, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I think we should move on, right? To like other topics and broader topics. Uh, what's in the news this week? <laughs> okay, so a couple of things that I wanted to put in front of you guys and get your thoughts on, right? So there's been quite a bit of movement in the uh, vertical farming industry. Um, in particular, a couple of uh, weeks ago, there's a company called App Harvest that uh, did an IPO and raised a whole bunch of money. And, you know, our phone's been ringing from investors that are like, oh, I want in on this game. I need exposure to, to indoor farming, right? Um, uh, we also saw a company called Plenty, which is based out in San Francisco, um, uh, announce a deal with Triscoll's that uh, should be well known to, to everyone for, for their strawberries. Um, what do you think of what's happening in this space? So, you know, we've seen a ton of venture money come into it from tech investors. And you're like, eh, really? Tech's going to grow lettuce? Um, but there seems to be something there. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, there's a lot of things going on. So, I, you know, firstly, I think this year, um, you know, people, investors, others have realized, you know, how much pressure the food supply chain can come under when it's like in COVID or whatever. So you saw companies like Amazon, Fresh Direct, like literally scrambling to do their deliveries. And the same thing was kind of happening on the back end, but consumers didn't really necessarily see it, you know. And so vertical farming, you know, one of the promises of vertical farming is that that supply chain gets a lot simpler. You're just doing local delivery or direct delivery to supermarket even. Um, and so that's hugely attractive, right? If you're a supermarket that needs to supply people, rain, shine, pandemic, whatever, you want to have that closer relationship. And so I think there's, you know, it's no brainer to invest in vertical farming. I think if you zoom out from it or zoom in, maybe zoom in, uh, like, the other, the other problem with it, though, is, okay, are these companies actually making money? And, you know, the answer uh, is either no or, like, no one really knows. You know, if you look at uh, a vertical farm like this for, for the uninitiated, right, uh, behind me you can see a lot of expensive stuff. You can see LED lights, which are expensive. You can see uh, all these hydroponic trays and systems and racks and stuff like that. We're in a controlled environment, which requires HVAC um it requires people to 
manage and harvest and all this kind of stuff. Vertical farms are very expensive to run. It is not clear yet that anyone who's doing it at a mass consumer scale is actually making money operationally. And what the conflict is obviously that everyone knows in the future that the produce market, which is already big, it's only growing and it's only going to get more and more attractive to buy from vertical farming farms. So there's a hugely attractive like prize there in the future. Um, but companies have to figure out how to get from here to there. And so, you know, over the past five years, you've seen a huge amount of investment go in. Uh, SoftBank notably invested, uh, I don't know how much, a lot of money into Plenty, like hundreds of millions of dollars. SoftBank, the uh, same uh, bunch of guys who invested in WeWork, uh, famously. Um, so, you know, there's, there's questions about their process and whether they evaluate things based on uh, short-term profitability or potential long-term gains. Um, there's questions about all that, but like fundamentally they're trying to own a piece of a company that will own a piece of the grocery pie, the produce pie, which is so big. And whoever, like frankly, whoever does succeed big time at the vertical farming space at scale, it is a huge price. I mean, it's billions and billions and billions of dollars just in the US and it's technology that can readily be exported. And so you'll see these companies try to do deals globally and that kind of thing. But to get there, sorry, I'm taking a long time, Michael, but like to get there, you have to build farms and farms are really expensive things to build and farms are really expensive things to do R&D with. So if you build, want to build a 10,000 square foot farm, I don't know, you're spending millions and millions of dollars or 100,000 square feet, spending millions of dollars. And then at the end of that, uh, you may not even have a farm that's operationally profitable. You may have to build another one and another one and another one. And it may take you 10 years or so to iterate. And so you just need a huge amount of capital to play that kind of game. You're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars even just to get started. And so I think what you're going to see, you know, SoftBank just followed on its own investment in Plenty. It's never clear when a VC does that if the company is really, you know, doing great or the they just don't want the company to fail, but we'll see. But you'll see um, some of these companies disappearing. I think you'll see some acquisitions that may or may not be publicly, uh, you might not be able to see the value of those. Um, and then you might see a couple succeed. And we, I think it's really just not clear at all who is going to succeed right now, uh, partly because these companies are so, so secretive. If you're buying vertically farmed produce in the supermarket, um, it's quite likely that that's quite heavily subsidized by VC money right now. In the same way that if you take an Uber, the true price of that Uber may be actually more than what you're paying, but it's subsidized by a huge amount of capital in order to grow market share. And so um, the last thing I was going to say is if you look at the App Harvest deal, it's a SPAC. It's a special, special purpose acquisition. Uh, what's the last word of that acronym? I can't remember. Company, okay, which basically normally means it's a bunch of people who get together and say, I want to do a thing. I need money to do a thing. Can I have that money to do the thing? But they haven't done the thing yet, you know? And, and so the App Harvest thing is, is a little bit weird because it is sort of an established company, but it's sort of doing an outsized raise in an environment where if you look back like three years ago, I think it might be like one or two SPACs that you would see. But this year, everyone has a SPAC. I know probably, do you have a SPAC? Like probably you will in a few weeks time. Like everyone's doing SPACs right now because uh, the IPO market is frothy and 
I don't know, it's just trendy. So that one's a bit of a weird one. Historically, SPACs are not very, um, they don't produce good returns for investors if you look at the numbers. Um, and so I don't know, it's like another way of raising money, but uh, it certainly doesn't fill me with like loads of excitement and uh, I'm not like super impressed. Um, that's my take. But what do you think, Michael? <laughs> well, I mean, the Plenty Driscoll's deal, I think is more interesting in the, a couple of things. So Driscoll's, everyone will know when you go to the grocery store, if you pick up some blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, uh, strawberries, it's probably Driscoll's. I don't know what the percentage market share is. It always feels like it's about 99.5%. Driscoll's is interesting. They don't really grow berries. They're more of a organizer of growers and they put a brand on. So you'll when you buy those berries, it, it means that they've been grown according to like a Driscoll's standard. But Driscoll's does do a lot of R&D about berry varieties. If you look at strawberries, for instance, uh, strawberries are very, very delicate objects. Um, they're hard to transport. Um, they are valuable objects. They're very sensitive to temperature fluctuation, um, all kinds of things about strawberries, right? So you can imagine that Driscoll's is desperate to find, on the one hand, varieties of strawberries that taste great, transport well, uh, aren't as perishable. On the other hand, they're interested in ways of getting more reliable strawberries and what could be a more reliable way than a vertical farm. My context on this is, you know, living, I lived in Japan for eight years or so, the Japanese strawberry market is sort of completely different to the US strawberry market. Jap in Japan, strawberries can be this very, very premium item. Have you had Japanese like fancy strawberries? No, but in the Philippines, they have a certain area that is super oh. fancy strawberries and okay. you can only get it in that. Yeah. It's called Baguio. It's called yeah. what? Baguio. Baguio. It's okay. where the climate of strawberries can grow and you can only okay. get strawberries if you travel there. Yeah, so you have these, but they're expensive, right? Oh, so expensive. Yeah. So expensive. And then, Michael, you probably had, have you had like Japanese fancy strawberries? I have not. I have not, but I've, uh, I've heard all about it. And if, uh, if you guys didn't catch that Eater uh, article with the video and uh, Oishi Berry, yeah. Yeah, I'm well, so, in. I mean, the context is okay, if you go to Japan, you go to like not even a super upscale grocery store, like a regular grocery store, if it's the right season, you will find these packages of strawberries that are, I mean, beautifully packed. Like every strawberry is arranged like a chocolate in this um, exquisite packaging. You'll taste them. They are, I mean, I don't know, five times better than a regular strawberry. And they'll have different textures. They'll generally be a little bit softer than what you'll find here on the US market. They've been transported more carefully. The, the Japanese logistics infrastructure is insanely great. Like their trains are great. Uh, they're really fast. Uh, they know how to transport stuff without damaging it. So those strawberries may have come from quite a long way in Japan away, but they're gonna be beautiful. And the US just doesn't really have that in place. And so when we buy strawberries in a grocery store, they're generally strawberries that have had to go on a truck from California. They've had to keep that temperature consistent. Even when they're being picked, it's a very, very precise process where like you and I would not be good at picking strawberries. We would probably damage them. Like the people who do that, it is really, really hard work. You should look at some photography of people doing it or video. It's um, often on this like special kind of platform where you're like leaning over. So you're not actually walking. You're like suspended above the plants. It's crazy. Um, there's also a really good article in the New Yorker about 
Driscoll's and their breeding of uh, berries. There's another one about automated harvesting, which is really interesting. Anyway, plenty Driscoll's. It makes a lot of sense, like for me, for Driscoll's to want to pursue vertical farming of strawberries and other berries. That makes a lot of sense. Strawberries are the best candidate in the berry world because it's the fastest growing plant, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I got to say, like compared to leafy greens, and this is true if you speak to anyone who grows strawberries or other berries, it's a lot harder. Like not that this is easy, but strawberries require pollination. They require they're much more sensitive to things like humidity and other lighting and stuff. And so uh, it's a more difficult thing. This is why you don't see a lot of these strawberries on the market yet. Plenty, um, as far as I know, has no track record in strawberries. Certainly publicly, it's not something they've talked about. Um, it may just be more about their inbuilt expertise and uh, the people they have working there in order to solve problems. They're probably gonna hire some people. I think they should probably hire some people from Japan or from the Philippines maybe. Um, if you look at it, there's other companies out there. There's a company that we know reasonably well called Oishi Berry based in New Jersey. They've been producing a premium strawberry uh, actually a couple of varieties, but particularly a, a premium strawberry closer to the Japanese model that they've been offering to restaurants around New York City. You can taste them. I've tasted them. Have you had them? I have. They're amazing. They're so, so good. And the guy, um, Brendan, and well, there's a bunch of them, but they bring the strawberries around in this kind of back to the future, like uh, container where they've got this like custom made suitcase kind of thing. And they bring it out and it's almost like the dry ice comes out and you get the strawberry. And they're packaged in this amazing, I don't know if it's sustainable, but this amazing um, sort of soft plastic packet. It's like a, um, it's like a little sort of uh, bag for the strawberry made out of, uh, I don't know, LDP, like a, a flexible plastic. And so it's sort of sitting in a cushion. It's like a strawberry couch. It is like a strawberry couch, right? Uh, and they didn't, and so, the reason I mentioned these guys is they've been kind of doing this for several years and they're really good at it. So I don't know what if Plenty is at the same stage or whatever, whatever, but um, but yeah, there's other people trying to do this thing. And it's certainly a very attractive market for all the reasons I outlined. Uh, whoever does it, they're going to be a successful company. Um, so yeah, that's my take on Plenty and Driscoll. <laughs> I think some hope, hopefully in a future episode we can drill down on what what crops make sense for vertical farming today versus maybe in the future what what crops might not. Not um, jackfruit. Not jackfruit. <laughs> I I don't know why. I think there's probably a strong case to be made for it. Um, the joke is that uh, a few months ago we were talking to a potential investor who who was really keen to grow jackfruit, and we were all sort of like. Hmm. If you don't know what jackfruit is, it's about that big. And the trees are, what, like 80 foot tall on average or something? Yeah, it didn't make sense to me. Yeah, so that's a topic for hopefully an upcoming episode, how to think about it. Because we do talk to a lot of uh, uh, farmers and prospective farmers. And part of, part of what we do is help them figure out what crops make sense for them. Um, and, yeah. uh, and, and so that's, that's hopefully a conversation we can get into. Uh, shall we move on to, to we got to move on we got we're short of time we got to we got to get cracking what's next michael got to get moving um so there was a study that came out uh just a couple of days ago i think let me just pull it up here yeah it was on the 22nd but it was a study in uh, out of canada out of 
Dalhousie University. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. I may have fucked it up. But the study was that it suggested that four and five Canadians are willing to pay extra for locally grown produce. So that's an interesting one, right? Because some of the stuff you, how do we as an industry where, you know, the, the care and everything that goes into it and the cost of growing some of the stuff and you're competing with these large factory farms, you know, but they may be off somewhere that you'll never visit because, you know, frankly, who really cares to experience lettuce in a tour? But, um, you know, what, how do you, how do people think about this? I mean, how do we think about how we can compete as an industry, at least right now, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I when I hear something like that, then I go like, okay, well, you got to prove it. Like, how many of these people are actually paying more? You know, because there's a there's an aspiration there, right? You want a uh, virtue signal, right? Like, oh yeah, of course, I'm the kind of person who would do that. But when it comes down to it, are they going to the farmers market? Are they seeking out community farms? Like, mm, I don't know. And so that actual, like, what's that incremental price difference that they're prepared to pay? I would really want to see that. I think that, like, the evidence that we have is that certainly some people are prepared to pay more. Our product is a premium product. You're kind of paying more for, like, the freshness, the delivery, the packaging, the, the varieties of stuff as well, I guess. But it mixed into that. I guess it's, it, you know, the question really comes down to like the grocery store level for your everyday customer who hasn't really got time to think about this stuff. How much, how important is it for them? I think as well, you know, it sort of points to like a bigger picture question about like, okay, well, if you live in a city, what do you expect life to be like? Where do you expect your produce to come from? I think we've been trained in modern cities now to not even think about it, you know, and there's various forces that hopefully start to come into play climate change um hopefully people's wanting a more diverse diet more plant-based diet all this kind of stuff that maybe will get more and more people to think about this stuff but i would say at the moment in the mind of the everyday busy consumer who's got 20 other things going on like i don't i don't see it yet and i want to see it i really want to see it I, for me, I'm, you know, when I think about like paying extra for lo locally grown, it's so much more than just the transaction of here, take my money and I yeah. take the produce. There's a connection there. And I have a relationship with the person growing the food. And then also I'm being a community member, right? Because I'm supporting a company in my community that will then make my community more resilient if I'm investing my where if, if I'm choosing where to spend my money into the community. I, I agree with that. I, it's something that also I, I mean, it's a bit of a tangent, but if you want to hear like a rubber opinion of something like, I, I really do think now about how much I am involved in the community in the city and stuff like that. And, and sort of like one of the most involved I've been this year is just going to a bunch of protests which is like a pretty new thing, I think, for a lot of people in America. But like that sense of like, oh, I have to go and stand up and be counted and do this. Um, like that's a way of getting engaged in the community. And I think a lot of us, I mean, certainly Michael, you and myself, we've traveled quite a lot and, and like we've worked in different places and stuff. And I think partly we have been this sort of transient class of tech workers where you're like, okay, I live here, but I live in like an apartment building. I don't really know my neighbors or this kind of stuff. 
And I think you know, there are forces like this where buying food locally and getting involved in community in just through food, like is one way that, um, you know, people can start to get more engaged, I think. Do you agree with that? Is that like a- Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. It's, it's being, you know, what does it mean to be a New York City community member? Right. Do you agree, yeah. Michael? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I, I think that's one of the more disappointing things about the way cities have evolved, you know, this sort of transient nature. Um, you know, I remember uh, when I first started coming to Washington, D.C. and spending time here, um, I didn't get that sense at all. And it took me a really long time to figure out the, the, the true character and the true sort of nature of DC, which isn't, you know, what us as outsiders sort of think, right? It's like a lot of government, a lot of lobbying, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the history of the natives that, that, that are from here and that, you know, go back a few generations um, was sort of, you know, it took a little bit to dig into, but it was there. And I think I found that when I lived in, in New York, I mean, most cities, it's always a surprise when you meet someone who grew up there, right? It's always fun when I was living in San Francisco, occasionally you'd meet somebody who'd be like, oh yeah, I grew up here. I went to high school here. This is where, you know, and you're like, wow, that's strange. And same thing in New York. It's like all over the place like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I think even on the, on the, on the, um, cost pit too the locally produced and the care that goes into it the relationship that you have with the people that produce it and also the quality of it right because there's a degree of accountability right because you're buying from the producer or you're buying from someone who's one step removed from the producer as opposed to you know you pop into your whole foods or or your safeway and it's just on the shelf and you know you know that 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 it's been sitting there for whatever and you know store bought lemongrass never sort of has the same level of quality as the stuff that yeah. you know is carefully grown or that you even grow so i don't know i think there's something there and you know, the price is, is maybe what it is. There's, you know, the efficiencies of factory farming. Uh, but, you know, it, 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 there's, a, I, I don't know. I, to me, yeah, it's, there's, it's there's, like a, there's something to be said about the quality that you get. And oh, I, I totally agree. I just think we, we're in a weird situation right now with food where, like, if you don't want pesticides on your food, you have to pay more money. If you want like local food, you have to pay more money. And so it's like, it just excludes people from something that it should really be available to almost anybody, I think. And uh, that's what I would love to change. And I, I think that small farms and making it easier to build small farms and run them and, and technology that can do that um, can help, you know? Uh, that's my hope. That's why we're all here, right? Of course. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you perfectly well, set up more set future up episodes of this podcast where we'll talk to <laughs> the people that are doing this. Yeah, I guess so. Should we sort of wrap it up then? What do you think? Yeah? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we're, I guess we're really curious, like, what you think and if there's topics that, you know, we'd love you'd love us to dive into in more detail um you know it could be things about the farm could be plants that we grow we didn't really even talk about like specific things like this marigold right here or anything like that so we can totally dive into more of that stuff there's obviously more industry uh topics which michael is heavily involved in and then everything to do with subscriptions and custom installations and everything which is Ina's thing but 
uh, yeah, happy to talk about a bunch of things. And then coming up, we're going to have more interviews as well. So maybe on the farm or remotely, uh, we'll have people from the industry, people in the food world, uh, all kinds of things like that. So uh, that's it. Probably at the end of this, normally we're going to go like you have to like and subscribe and do all this. But like for now, uh, we loved your feedback and thank you for joining us today. Uh, we're going to say goodbye.